You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, as you're turning in your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 6, um, Actually, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bring you one. Just slide your hand up. Ushers would love to bring you one. But as we're turning to chapter 6, we just started to talk about Noah uh, last week and the flood. And uh, we're going to be in this story for the next a few weeks for sure. But as you're turning there, let it not surprise you uh, that the story of Noah's ark and the flood is one of the most famous, well-known stories in all the Bible. In fact, according to the British Bible Society, Noah's Ark ranks as the second most well-known story in all of Scripture next to the birth of Christ. It seems that Christians and non-Christians alike have a unique fondness and attraction to this incredible story. As you can see, I have a slide here of uh, just a slew of, of children's toys and children's books and baby decor made and written over the years depicting what is a rather horrific story and uh, making it just a cute little nursery rhyme-like kind of a boat and animal tale. Again, mass-produced by companies like Fisher-Price, Playmobil. Funny enough, though, I was searching for a Lego Noah's Ark, but they have no Lego Noah's Ark in all of their history. You might say something about the company, but that would be cool to have a real one. Now, over the years, uh, this whole story has been very popular for sure. Um, The name Noah has become very popular for baby boys. In fact, in 2013, the name Noah kicked Jacob out of first place for the most popular boy name, according to Nameberry.com. It still ranks as the second most popular name uh, in the USA. The biblical story has been brought to the big screen from the classic account Uh, John Houston's 1966 classic, The Bible, and many more from that day up into the recent movie Noah, starring Russell Crowe, to a comedy, I think it's one of our family's favorites, Evan Almighty, it's a funny one, starring Steve Carell, and then even most recently I found out that there is a Noah's shark, get to the higher ground, it says. So as we approach the story here today... And next week, it's not an obscure story at all. It's not an unknown biblical story. In fact, it's so well known. Everybody has their own fascination, their own opinion on it. And it's one of those Bible stories that gets many questions and much scrutiny as well. From critics and skeptics outside the church and even from within. In fact, a recent poll by Barna reveals that only 60% of professing Christians today believe that this story is really true. Again, that's professing Christians. That it really happened, that it really didn't happen, they would say, the way that the Bible said. So as it goes with the six-day creation, some believe that science has disproven this story, and they merely just kind of lower it to the category of a legend or an allegory rather than real history that the Bible claims it to be. So let me ask you, as we, as we come in here this morning and we get into this text, how do you feel about the worldwide flood that happened? How do you feel about the story of Noah and his ark? 
where God determined to make an end of all humanity except for one family, where God will destroy every living thing by drowning the entire world for almost a year, but yet he saves Noah, and he saves his family, and then he saves two of each kind of every animal and bird in the world by stuffing them into one big boat with Noah and his sons built out of gopher wood. Do you really believe that? Like, really, do you believe that? Isn't that just too fantastic? Isn't that too unbelievable? Well, friends, as much as the world may find this story unbelievable, what's truly unbelievable is the overflowing grace of God amid such an overwhelming justice. And so today, as we examine the story of such overwhelming justice and overflowing grace, God's word will reveal an ongoing contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous in light of the end of the world. So we'll be looking at chapter 6, moving from verse 9 and going to chapter 7, verse 24. Quite a chunk of scripture here. And so with that, let's pray. We need the Lord's help. Father, we do thank you for gathering us here this morning. We thank you that we get to walk through these doors and freely worship you as the body of Christ, as those who are redeemed and who are washed by your blood, as we just sang. We thank you that we get to open your word here this morning, that you have preserved your word over the ages and you have revealed yourself to man through your word, that as Genesis began, in the beginning, God. And so we thank you that we get to study who you are We get to see ourselves in light of who you are, and we get to see your grace and mercy on display here and your justice here this morning. So we pray that as we have come in from a week upon us and we go into a new week as well, that you would be doing a great deep work in our hearts this morning as we study the story of Noah, the story of your great flood, the story of your justice and your salvation. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as last week, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, we witnessed the pervasiveness of sin, the propensity of sin, and the provision for sin. We witnessed in just a thousand years and in ten generations since the garden that the wickedness of man had so quickly multiplied and so widely spread and so deeply saturated that it grieved God to his very heart to the point that he was sorry that he even made man. He ultimately determined, because of that, to bring mankind to an end, where verse 7 from last week revealed, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So because of man's utter sinfulness, At that time, you know, man's total depravity, the Lord had had enough. And it was time to bring down his judgment accordingly. But then verse 8 revealed to us a glimpse of grace where it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, this son of Lamech, this son whom Lamech, his own father, hoped in, this one... He had found favor with God. To which we ask the question as we're approaching this text today, what does that mean? What does it mean to have the favor of God? Why was Noah favored? What is so special about Noah? 
which brings us to verse 9 to 13 to start us off today, which will reveal firstly that as the wicked corrupt the earth, the righteous walk by faith. As the wicked corrupt the earth, the righteous walk by faith. Starting in verse 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Meaning this is a whole new section. This is a third out of ten sections that begins in this generations of in Genesis. These are the generations of Noah, meaning basically this is the story of Noah and his sons, which goes on to reveal why Noah was favored by God. To which Moses, who's writing this, reveals that it was because, as it says here, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to learn a lot more about that next week. And so right away, as we see here, we see three distinct reasons as to why Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Number one, right, is because he was righteous. Number two, he was blameless. Number three, he, he walked with God. So if I was just to stop here <coughs> and preach this message and preach this text just kind of in isolation, if I was to choose to preach a moralistic message from this text alone, I would say to you that although you are sinful, if you want to find the favor of God, if you want to be in God's good books, all you need to do is to be like Noah. In a world that's gone bad, you need to be good to please God. So then be like Noah. Be righteous. Be blameless. Walk with the Lord. <clears throat> now maybe that's the kind of message you've heard in the past. Maybe that's how you heard it taught in Sunday school growing up or in church. But friends, the truth is that if that's all that you get out of this, a message of do better, try harder, then all you've got is mere moralism. And friends, moralism will get you nowhere. In fact, moralism, quite frankly, will send you straight to hell. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I got water here. Yeah. Thanks for noticing. Yes, to be sure, as we look to the life of Noah here, there is truth that he stands out amongst the crowd of the wicked world around him. That is Romans 4.15 and 1 Corinthians 10.11 teach these things are written down as examples, like written down for our instruction, right? The, there are good things to be modeled here for sure, but again, if that's all we do with the text, if all that we do is moralize God's word, then we completely miss the point. We completely miss the point of this whole book. And then we completely miss the point of the gospel. So then, when, now when you see such bold statements like this, right? Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless. That he walked with God. We always need to understand what the author and what all of Scripture is saying. And so let me ask you, what was Moses saying as he's writing this? Was Moses saying to his people here that being righteous meant that Noah was perfect? Was he meaning that being blameless meant that Noah was without sin? Did it mean that when he says that Noah walked with God, that Noah walked perfectly with God and obeyed God every step he took in his life? No, of course not. 
No, Noah was not a perfect man. He was a sinner like the rest. In fact, when you study Noah's life right after the flood, what happens? Noah builds a vineyard. Noah gets plastered drunk. Right? And drunkenness in the eyes of God is sin. So we know that Noah was not a perfect man at all. He was not innocent of his sin. But he was a man who, like Enoch before him, as we already studied, walked with God. That that meant that he had a close relationship with God. And that that relationship is bearing the fruit of righteousness in his life. But even more than that, the major difference for Noah amid such a background of evil and utter depravity is that his life was marked by faith. Faith not found within himself, faith not found within his works, but faith that he had in the Lord. Meaning that as he was also a sinner, he would have known full well his own heart, his own depths of depravity himself. So his hope wasn't in himself, his hope was in something else. His hope was in the promise of God. His hope was in God himself. The same God who promised in the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 to send a serpent-crushing Savior. That was the gospel. And friends, that's where righteousness is found. That's where Noah's righteousness is found. Because righteousness comes through what? Righteousness comes through faith. In fact, just like his own distant offspring, Abraham, who was also, by the way, regarded as a righteous man, the same righteousness that Noah has claimed to have is the same righteousness that Abraham had. Genesis 15, 6 says this about Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness, right? Not that Abraham was righteous in and of himself, but that righteousness was accounted to him through faith. And friends, it's when you believe, it's when you have faith in the Lord, that righteousness is accounted to you. It's a righteousness that then also begins to come out of you. It changes you. It transforms you. So that even though Noah fell short of the glory of God, as we all do, he is standing out in his generation as the only one left in a world full of evil. The only one left who still believed. The only one left whose character is lining up with what he professed. To the point that the Lord also sees him as blameless. Right? To be blameless means that you are a person of integrity. Like Job, who is to come as well. Job, who has regarded himself as being one who was blameless. In fact, if you remember the book of Job, as Satan is is going around the earth looking for somebody to tempt, who did God say that Satan should go and tempt? He he sends him to Job. Job 2, verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So we see blameless, upright. This is speaking about godly integrity, that that Noah, like Job, had integrity. 
And he had some observable, godly character. Again, purity. We're seeing that here being acclaimed to Noah. And then thirdly, as Moses says, that as Noah was a man who walked with God, again, that should immediately remind us of Enoch just recently from Genesis 5, 24. Remember, he was the one who, who walked so closely with God that, that instead of dying, God just took him. So overall, what we see here with Noah is that his faith was real. And his faith was producing fruit, and God was taking notice. Just as Hebrews eleven six 6-7 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And then it says about Noah, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? A righteousness that doesn't come from himself, but a righteousness that comes by faith. And friends, that's the way righteousness works. As as no one is righteous, no, not one, perfect righteousness can only be credited, or even better said, imputed to your account through faith. Friends, this is the only way that you can be reconciled to God. It's the only way that you can please God. It's the only way that you can find favor in God. This is the only way that anybody can be saved by God. And it's the only way anyone throughout this whole Bible is ultimately saved. This is called justification by faith. Noah believed in the same Savior that we do. Noah was saved by the exact same Savior that all of us are. He's saved by Christ Jesus. Although for Noah, it was veiled to him and distant, and he didn't know the name of Jesus yet, he believed in the promise pointing towards Jesus, that there is one coming who is going to crush the head of the serpent, and then by his father's own prophecy... It's going to be a person who is going to relieve them from the toil and the pain and the struggle of sin. So by faith, he believed in that very one. And friends, it is the exact same for you. The way that Noah looked forward, we look back. That although we know the name of Jesus and we have a crystal clear picture of him and testimony in the scriptures, we are still all saved by being justified by faith, right? Romans 10.10, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. So all of that to say, very importantly and critically, we never just look at our heroes in the Bible, our heroes of the faith, and think that somehow they were just good enough to please God, and therefore we need to be good enough. It doesn't work that way. No, as, as Noah is said to be righteous, and blameless, know that righteousness, the righteousness that he needed, was the righteousness that was input upon him by Jesus Christ. And it's the same righteousness that we all need to be imputed to our account by faith. Probably the most important thing you can probably learn in, in Scripture. And so Noah is righteous. The world around him is wicked. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. So not just corrupt towards oneself, 
but corrupt towards each other. And what we're seeing here is that it's resulting in violence towards each other. Right? They would have been warring. They would have been murdering, just like Cain, right? the first murderer. Verse 12, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So not only were they violently corrupting each other, but they're also corrupting the good creation itself. Verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So they're corrupting the earth, therefore God is going to destroy them with the earth. And so we see here this word corrupt being used three times. Three times usually means great emphasis, right? Major emphasis going on here. The corruption of man has so corrupted the entire earth that the only answer is to destroy it. And so God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God says, I will destroy them. And so what we see here in this first section is that as the wicked corrupt the earth, the righteous walk by faith. Friends, even though every thought and intention of the heart of man was only evil continually back then, sin still remains just as evil today. And it is just as continual today. And yes, there is a day coming. There is the great day coming when God is going to finally and eternally finish it all. But what we need to see here in contrast to how the wicked corrupt it all is that in spite of all that, you can still walk with God. You can still walk by faith in this corrupt world that is around you. You can still be considered blameless and righteous just like Noah was in a world so wickedly fallen. Again, the blamelessness and righteousness that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, it's then and only then that we can truly shine in the darkness of this world. Right? We're called to shine the light of Christ into this world. Jesus Christ. We're called to shine him into a dark and a decaying world, like a lamp in a dark place or a, a city shining on the hill. Friends, Ephesians 5.8 says... For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Walk, right? Again, walk. Walk as children of the light. Walk by faith. You can't earn it. Jesus earned it for you. And so trust in him alone, and he will then shine his light of righteousness through you, as he grows you, as he matures you, more of Christ is going to come out. More of his righteousness is going to, going to be seen in the world. More of that blameless, above reproach character is going to come out, and the world is going to see you. So it's not just about mere morality here, it's about faith. Just as Charles Spurgeon said, morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to keep you out of hell. So as Genesis is foundational, friends, this is fundamental. Now as the story goes on to contrast the wicked and the righteous, the next fundamental reality we see here is that 
As the wicked reject the warning, the righteous prepare for salvation. Now, as the Lord declared that he would destroy the wicked from the earth, before he tells Noah exactly how he's going to do it, first we see him giving Noah some incredibly detailed instructions. He says in, in verse 14, he says, Make yourself an ark out of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. So let's just stop there. We're going to see that he's going to give the dimensions and more detailed instructions here to come. But for, for the sake of just taking this all in, try to picture, if you can, try to picture Noah, the last and only righteous man. Now he's receiving direct revelation from God. Could have been in a vision could have just been him hearing audibly or clearly from God. It doesn't say here in the scriptures, but just picture for yourself this man walking closely with God in a world that is so evil and dark and try to imagine what he's thinking. Right? The God who spoke everything into existence a thousand years ago for him is now speaking directly to him. He's speaking about how he is going to destroy the earth. But then he's also so graciously telling him how he is going to save him and his family. And then he's going to go on to tell him how he is to do it. Just imagine the weight of that moment. Imagine the reverence of that moment. That the holy and righteous God of the universe is giving you the exact details of what you need to do. How you need to prepare for the final day. Imagine the notes that Noah would be taking on his tablet. Right? Not the tablet that you're thinking of. Tablet of stone, probably. Just, just imagine how he'd be listening so intently to every detail. Friends, when God gives us instructions, we better listen up. As God gives us the details, we have to listen up. Why? Because he's God. What he has revealed is of the most and greatest importance in our lives. It means the difference between death and life. And so we need to hold on to every word of the Bible. We need to take it all in. And so with that said, Noah hears from God that he is to build an ark. He's to build an ark of gopher wood. Well, the word ark in the Hebrew, taba, means chest. It means box. It even means coffin. It's only used here in the Old Testament in this story and once more to describe the floating basket where baby Moses was placed. Very interesting connection when you tease that out. But nonetheless, an ark is a floating vessel. It's a floating container of sorts. It's meant to carry something living upon the water. And so in the face of the world's looming destruction, Moses, well not Moses, Noah, is being told to build a floating vessel. So it's obviously a boat of some sorts. He is told to build it out of gopher wood. Now, I don't know if you guys have been down to Windsor Plywood lately. Anybody buying a sheet of gopher wood? No. So this wood, we're not quite sure what it was, but it would have come from a source of trees, probably very large trees, maybe cypress trees. It would have come in abundance from an area that would have provided lots of Lumber that is big enough and available enough for such a massive project. And so then God says, he is to cover it inside and out with pitch. 
pitch would have been something or some kind of a waterproofing, maybe some kind of a wax or some kind of a, a natural agent, maybe bitumen for sealing the cracks in order to ensure a watertight buoyancy. And so right out of the gate, Noah finds out here that he's going to build a boat. Now, just for a bit of geographical context, it's most understood that Noah lives somewhere in the Mesopotamian region. I have a map here. Somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which would be modern Iraq today, especially when we know that the ark is to land, there's a little red mark up top there, in the, in the mountains of Ararat. It's probably best to assume that uh, where, where Noah was living was in that area of what would be modern-day Iraq. And let me ask you, in the middle of that, what, what do you see for oceans? You really don't see a whole lot. You see some rivers, you see some lakes. But here is Noah in the middle of Mesopotamia being commanded to make a boat. And not just any boat, but as we're going to learn, it's going to be a gargantuous ship. Like the biggest ship ever built at that time. And so you ask, how big was it? Well, the Lord says the length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And then he says, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And so 300 cubits, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall. Now, now who knows how long a cubit is? Anybody? Go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> okay. Leo, would you come up here? I need a hand. Leo, did you bring your cubit measuring tape with you today? All right. A, a cubit is the length of your fingertips to your elbow. So let's just check it out here. Well, well you're about 18 inches. That's pretty good. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> A cubit is somewhere between 18 and 20 inches, depending on your, your size for sure. Which means that if you do the calculations, this is no little fishing boat. This is a massive ship. And it says that it's a ship with three decks, with the length of that ship coming in around 510 feet long, which in Canadian terms is about two and a half hockey rinks. It's about 85 feet wide. Actually, that's about the, the width of this room, if not a little bit more. That width would be like two lengths of school buses. And it's also going to be 50 feet high. That's 10 stories tall. This would have been a huge boat. But just consider back then that this would have felt like an impossible feat. This was going to be absolutely huge to some guy that's living in the middle of nowhere near an ocean. And he has to build this massive ship. Got a couple of pictures here, some renditions of what this would look like to scale. You can see the dimensions there. It makes it a long, wide ship. In fact, as you look at the dimensions of this, it's a very stable ship. In fact, when you go and look at cargo ships today, they're very much that same, that, those same dimensions. They're larger, but the same dimensions for sure. In fact, some Koreans built a model of this, and they some Korean uh, uh, scientists, and they put it through a seaworthy simulator, and, and the ark comes out as, a, as an extremely stable ship. 
If it was longer, it would be prone to breaking apart. If it was shorter or even narrower, it would be much less stable and would be prone to capsizing and sinking. So again, it's not surprising, right? God is the God of all knowledge. He knows exactly what's going to work the best. And so then Noah here is also called to make a roof for that ark. It says that he finishes it to a cubit above, right? Because there's going to be a lot of rain coming. You're going to have to keep the water from coming into the boat. And then it says that Noah is to put a door in the side of this ark. We're going to know what that's for here soon. And he's going to build three decks. And so we ask the question, why is the Lord getting Noah to build a boat, a massive ship? Now, Noah could assume at this point that maybe it's just for them. But why is he ultimately building this? Verse 17 says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So the destruction for the earth, as he promised earlier, is now revealed to be coming by water. Hence, this massive ship. But why so big? Well, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. He's promising to save Noah. You shall come into the ark, you and your son. So that's Shem, Ham, and Japheth from verse 10. That makes four of them. And then he says, your wife and your son's wives with you. You add all that up. It's a grand total of eight people. But still, why is he going to need a boat that big? Well, verse 9 says, end of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And again, what does it say next? Understatement of the century. It says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And this is where we lose the skeptics. This is where we lose the critics. This is where we lose the so-called experts. And maybe this is even where we lose some of us. Like two of every kind of animals, males and females, of every kinds and birds, animals and creeping things on the earth, that's crazy. Like this is where the Bible is losing its credibility. It doesn't make sense to me. It's too unbelievable. It's too impossible which some may be thinking. To which I say, is it too impossible? Is it too fantastic? Is it just another fairy tale? How about the giants from last week? How about the earth being created in just six days? How about the parting of the Red Sea? How about the sun stopping in the sky? How about a man surviving three days in the belly of a whale? This stuff is too far-fetched, God. Can I believe this? I'm not sure about this stuff. We might be prone to, to believing. Well, let me ask you this. Can you believe the story about a man who was born of a virgin? Who claims to be God? who turns water into wine, who heals the sick, who raises the dead, who walks on water, who feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Can you believe the story about a man who truly dies on a Roman cross and is buried in a grave 
to only rise three days later? How's that for impossible? How's that for implausible? Is that too unbelievable? How come we can believe in Jesus, but we can reject the other incredible stories of Scripture? Friends, we have to be careful. We have to take God's word for God's word. Either he wrote it exactly as he saw fit, or he didn't. Either what he has revealed is absolutely true, or it's just full of error and it's insufficient. Friends, we have to be careful. We cannot pick and choose what we believe is real and what we, what we don't. We either take it all or we take none. And a recent poll was done with millennials, and I'm sorry, millennials, you always get picked on. It reveals that over half of Christian millennials believe that the Bible has mistakes, that the Bible is wrong about the age of the earth, that stories like Noah's Ark are just fanciful myths, and that they don't square with science, especially those of us who are going off into college, university. Be careful. The world is going to come so fast against you with what you believe and what you know to be true. You know, when I was a kid, I often wondered if the flood really happened as well. Like, is this really true? One time I went camping, though, and I went up a mountain with my dad and a bunch of our church friends, and on top of that mountain, I found a rock with a seashell fossil on it. I remember finding that rock and saying to myself, it's true, it's, the flood was really true. Like, not only does the Bible teach it, but the evidence of the earth also confirms it. And not only does the evidence confirm it, but stories around the world also confirm this as well. Did you know that there are over 250 legends around the world of a great flood that covered the earth? Cultures from people groups across the whole earth, from the First Nations right here in North America to South America, Asia, Australia, Africa, every continent has multiple stories about a great flood. In fact, even at the time of Moses writing this here in Genesis, there was other legends going on about the flood. There was the Epic of Gilgamesh, which, which shared many of the same details about a God being upset, about him flooding the world, about a boat being built, and him just saving a few people and some animals. Now, to be fair, the dissimilarities in these stories far outweigh the similarities for sure, but but many of the details of these flood myths just further confirm that this was something that really happened in history. One flood myth actually talked about this boat being in the shape of a cube, which in the reality would not be seaworthy at all, to which we look at the biblical ark and we see how skillfully designed by God it is to be buoyant and to provide what is necessary. So friends, the reality is, is that as much as the biblical account may seem challenging to believe, when some scientists have studied it, especially creation scientists, as they have carefully worked through the biblical text, all of this is absolutely possible, absolutely plausible. In fact, as our text talks about loading up two of every animal, bird, and creeping thing, if you were to take... A male and female, and, and you have to take note here, it says of every kind. It doesn't say of every species, it says of every kind. That's at the family level. A male and female of each, 
lining up with Genesis 1, as creation says, creation scientists believe that there would be about 1,398 kinds. And so they estimate that there would be around, in total, about 7,000 mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians on board. And in fact, with that size of a ship, which would be comparable to to holding like 500 semi-truck trailers on all those floors, the animals would likely only take up about half of 1.5 million square feet of that ship. So there would be much more room than enough to handle what verse 21 says here as well. Also, God says, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If we go on, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Again, a reaffirmation of God's covenant and his righteousness that is applied to him. Verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. These seven pairs of clean animals and birds are going to reappear later as a sacrifice unto the Lord in chapter 8. So just put a pin in that one. Verse 4 says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then it says again, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Friends, there's so much here that can be examined and contemplated for sure. If you want to explore the science behind it, you could go to answersingenesis.org, or even better yet, travel down to Kentucky to the full-size ark that they built. There's a picture of it there. But the overall point here when it comes to the wicked and the, the righteous is that with the background of judgment is that as the wicked reject the warning, the righteous prepare for salvation. We're seeing that going on here. We see that mentioned twice. It says that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. In a world that would have been absolutely Uh, evil around him. They would have thought of him as crazy, thought of him as insane. He would be the the extreme modern doomsdayer. They would have ridiculed him. They would have scorned him, especially he and his sons, as they're building this mammoth-sized project for over a hundred years. But again, as Noah is found righteous, as crazily as the world would see him, he believed God, and so he did all that God commanded him. Right? He believed. He obeyed. His faith was proven in his action as he prepared for the end, friends, as we should be as well. We know that the final day is coming. We know that the greater judgment is coming. We know that right now God is holding back his wrath. We just sang about mercy. Mercy is him holding back his, his wrath. The earth's days are numbered. And as, and as you look to Jesus in the New Testament, he would warn over and over again. As you even look at the epistles, the apostles warn over and over and over again, right? Stay away, stand firm, 
Keep watching, keep walking, keep serving, keep going, keep sharing, keep making disciples, keep praying, keep trusting, keep growing. Friends, the life of the righteous isn't about sitting around. It isn't about lazing about, just kind of waiting for Christ to return. No, it's about getting after it. It's about getting after the mission that the Lord has given us. As Noah had such an unbelievable, massive task ahead of him, we have the same thing ahead of us. We're called to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Jesus said that in the end, lawlessness is going to increase. It's not going to get better, guys. It's getting worse, and it's going to get worse and worse. Jesus said the love of many is growing cold. But as for us, he says in Matthew 24, 13 to 14, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We have a lot of work to do. And then the end will come. As Noah and his sons worked tirelessly, as the world was watching, their testimony was preaching. Their testimony was heralding that their God is real. In fact, Peter himself calls Noah a herald of righteousness. In 2 Peter 2.5, he calls him a herald of righteousness. Also in Hebrews eleven seven, it confirms that his faithfulness was a message for the watching world around him. Hebrews eleven seven says, "By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household." But listen carefully. It says, "By this he condemned the world." and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So in Noah's life, by word and deed, he is heralding the truth. His message was a, a message of condemnation. And as he warned, his actions were a sure warning to the watching world that God is real and his judgment is coming. But what do they do with it? They reject the warning. Luke 17, 26 to 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They're just going about their life as wicked and evil. They're just going. They're seeing this being built and they reject it. And so we ask ourselves, what message are we sending to the world? In the days of the Son of Man, what are we sharing with the world in word and by deed, by our actions? What are we telling the world around us? Are we warning them of the judgment to come? Are we going to them, loving them with the greatest message ever shared? Are we serving? Are we working hard for the kingdom of God, for the Lord? Are we sharing the greatest news of a Savior, a coming judgment, but a Savior? Or are we just watching them eat and drink themselves to death? 
as the wicked reject, the righteous are to be preparing. And then next, as the wicked are blotted out, as the wicked are destroyed, the righteous are remembered. Chapter 7, verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. I mean, that's pretty accurate history taking right there. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. That's water coming from below, and that's waters coming from above. A great deluge. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all the flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And it says, the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door. The Lord sealed them in. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Friends, this is a global flood. Some try to argue of some kind of a localized flood. This is a global flood. It says the highest mountains, and if you're in that area, those are high mountains. And it says the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. How long was Leo's arm? About 18 inches. So it comes in around 20 feet. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And then it says, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is absolute, horrific, massive, global, god throwing his wrath on the earth judgment. But then it says, if you just look into chapter 8, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. As the wicked are destroyed, the righteous are remembered. 
What God promises, God does. As he determined to blot out mankind from the earth because of their absolute evil, he did so. He blotted them out. Friends, to blot out is to forget. They didn't have erasers. You'd have to blot it out, cover it with more ink in order to forget it. It's, to, it's really to erase and forget. But for Noah and his family, God remembered. He remembered his covenant to save them. Friends, this is the hope that we have as Christians. And this is the only hope that we have. That God would remember us. That the Lord is faithful to remember his covenant. As the world is growing more and more wicked all around us, friends, we need to stop here and and grieve this for a moment. This massive, wrathful judgment of God. It's horrific. This is not the God of those cute little Fisher-Price toys. This is a God who takes sin seriously. And his justice proves that. He blots them out. He rightly destroys them. When you think about today and you think about the darkness of our world, you think about the atrocities, the abuses, the absolute evil that is just continuing and continuing and getting worse. As much as that evil grieves our hearts, it so much more grieves the heart of God. And his wrath is being held back. It's coming. And there is a day coming when justice is coming. Right? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so we grieve that, but we also take comfort in that. Right? Because those injustices are going to be dealt with. Sin is going to be finally dealt with forever. Think of the worst atrocities you could ever think. When those go unrepented of, God is going to deal with them. You don't have to deal with them. God is. Take comfort in that. But also with that, as we see Noah and his family being remembered, that calls us to long for the day as Christians. That the righteous one is going to return. That the true righteous one, the true blameless one, the true God himself who walks with the Father is coming back. The true God who grants righteousness, declares righteousness to Noah. The same righteousness that is accounted to Abraham. The same righteousness that is accounted to those who repent and believe. He's coming back, and he's coming back very soon. And as the Lord shut and he sealed the door of the ark, so he places us within his Son. He puts us within the eternal safety of Jesus Christ. That as the world is eternally judged, we who are in him will be eternally saved. And so as this epic account is written to God's people, we must ask ourselves, as the wicked are corrupting, are we truly walking by faith? Are we truly believing in Jesus Christ alone? for salvation and sanctification? As the wicked are rejecting, are we preparing for that final day? Right? We're not going out digging a hole 
putting a tractor trailer in it and storing up for the day. We're not doing that. We are anticipating the return of our victorious Savior. And he's going to take us to be with him. And so we need to make sure that we're ready. Doing everything we can also to warn the world of the judgment to come and to tell them of a loving, everlasting Savior. And then as the wicked are being destroyed, friends, are we longing for the day? Are we longing for the day when, when Christ will press upon the horizon as the great remembering of his people? Friends, such overwhelming judgment, yet such unbelievable grace. Let's pray. Our Father, as we hear of this horrific story of, of judgment and grace, our eyes are on you. As, as the book of the Bible and the book of Genesis is a revelation of who you are, we see here your justice. We see your mercy. And we see your grace. We pray that as we study this and as we apply it deeply into our hearts, as we pray this into each other, as we hold ourselves accountable to the very word of God and what you call us to do, may you be glorified through this. May you receive the worship that is due your name as we behold you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.